James chapter 4, 1 to 10. And uh, I'm excited about the message this morning as we talk about characteristics of what it means to be close to God as well as characteristics of what is descriptive of a person who is reacting and being defiant against God. Now, here's my question for you this morning. How many of you have ever found it difficult to remain fully committed to Jesus? Anybody ever find that difficult? We do, don't we? It's not an easy, just take it up and do it kind of thing. And it's amazing that whenever we are into something that requires a little bit more, that requires us to be right on, requires us to give and to not give up, it always can be a little challenging. I ran across a diet this week called the stress diet, and uh, I thought it might be helpful for how we handle stress and kind of what we do to kind of keep ourselves in line. But the breakfast is a half grapefruit, and then a, one piece of whole wheat toast and eight ounces of skim, skim milk. For lunch, four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, one cup of steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie and herb tea. And then mid-afternoon snack, we eat the rest of the Oreo cookies, the rest of the package, a quart of Rocky Road ice cream and a jar of hot fudge. And for supper, two loaves of garlic bread, a complete pepperoni pizza, six-pack of cherry Coke, three Snicker bars, and we ended off with a light snack, snack of an entire frozen cheesecake taken directly out of the freezer. See, what happens to us, friends, when we get into situations that require discipline, require us to be right on, very few of us do that perfectly. And the beauty of it is that God knows that we are imperfect people living for Him. And more often than not, what makes us grow is not our perfection, but our desire, our seeking of God, the intent of our heart to continue to grow in that relationship. And this is what we're going to be talking about in James this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Please follow along as I read from the ESV version. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know what, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded." Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. A quick review. James 1.1 tells us that this is, book is written by James, a half-brother of Jesus, a disciple of Christ. This chapter, chapter 1, also tells us that it is written to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers, believers scattered abroad or a, away from Israel. So why were the Jewish believers scattered abroad? The book of James was written shortly after the time that Stephen was martyred. Stephen was martyred because the Jewish, the, the Jewish religion, the Jewish leaders of the Jewish church thought that he was doing something in opposition to what the Jewish faith believed. Stephen was also 
crucified, or he was also not crucified, he was also martyred because King Agrippa, or Herod, Herod Agrippa I, a Roman ruler, was decided to wipe out anything to do with Christianity because he believed that following Jesus was a threat to Rome. And so these Jewish Christians were fleeing Israel for their own safety. They were leaving the comfort of their homes, the security of their jobs. They were leaving a culture where they had an established identity, and they were forced to refugee status in other countries. And more than likely, they were tired, they were discouraged, they were concerned for their future, and uncertain about whether they would ever be able to go back home. Now, you can look at this, and we can see how this could cause some stress on a group of people, make them vulnerable, make it hard to live, make it hard to survive. You and I know what it's like when we get in situations where our lives seemingly are out of control, where things are happening we didn't want, where our emotions are on edge, where it's difficult to remain committed. This is the situation the Jewish Christians were involved in. And what is two things are happening? The first things that are happening is many of these Christians are turning away from God to try to control their own lives. Now, what is being described here could, if we were to put it in our own culture, it's people who are under stress, doing, going through a difficult time, and they're coming to church but yet not really sincerely following Jesus. We wear the name of Christ, we attend services, but we're not committed because we're trying to find our way. We're trying to recontrol our life. We're trying to figure out what do I need to do to put a basis on underneath me that is dependable and will give me some emotional peace and security. Friends, never doubt that it is God's will for you to be fully and unreservedly committed to Jesus. It's not enough just to offer Jesus a part of us. It's not enough to say, I'm going to just be partially committed. His blessings and God's purposes are most accomplished and experienced through those who are fully dedicated to Him. And God wants our full dedication because He understands when we are fully dedicated, we put ourselves in a position where we can fully receive and fully be changed. Four characteristics of a proud and defiant life based on, on your sermon outline. Number one, the defiant ones, the proud ones, experience quarrels and arguments. Verse 1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, arguing and fighting is often indication that we are defending something, that we are not willing to give in, that we need to stand up for what we believe, for what we want. And now, some of you are thinking, "Why?" I, there, there are times you might be thinking when I need to argue. You don't know my life. You don't know my family. You don't know my friends. You don't know my neighbors. You don't know my work environment. And the question we have to ask ourselves is we, when we get in these intense arguments, is that God's will for us or is there a different way? In Isaiah 30, the prophet Isaiah is addressing the people of Israel and the people of Israel at this time in history when Isaiah is addressing them are proud and defiant. They are coming against God and they are not responding to God in a way that is helpful. So what does Isaiah tell them? What does God tell them? What is the answer to their problem? How do you overcome this quarreling and this defiant attitude? This is what Isaiah says. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. So when we get in situations, friends, where we are tempted to quarrel and argue, the Bible says more often than not, that is just going to create another problem. Have you found that to be true? You not only have the original problem, and then you have the secondary problem, the argument started. And what Isaiah is saying, when we get into these situations, we need to back away. 
We need to return to God and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? We need to rest in the fact that God has a way for us to respond. And then we need to be quiet, having the confidence that God is going to speak into our lives. My mentor told me years ago that if I don't know what to say, don't say anything. Because if I say something out of reaction, that is probably not going to be what it is. I need to back away and not say anything until I know what it is to begin to stop the quarreling. Characteristic number two is inner conflict. At the end of verse one, James answers the question. He says, why is there this arguing and fighting between you? In this next section, he tells us why. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The New Living Translation says, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Now, what Paul James is saying, he is saying that oftentimes the problems we get into in life are because we are dealing with inner conflict that we haven't resolved. Friends, we are all through our Christian lives going to be given options of how to live. There's going to be the, the way that is most natural to us, which might not always be right, and there's going to be the way where we are transforming into that God has for us to live. For example, let's go back to the argument example. Maybe we have a pattern if when our spouse or someone threatens us, we begin to argue. And that is our go-to. That is our response. And what God says is sometimes we have to get rid of that inner conflict because we know that in us there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. But the right way to deal with an argument causes us to be vulnerable. And we don't want to be vulnerable because we've already been hurt. And God's saying, risk the new way. Resolve to make a new decision. Make a decision to say, God, I'm going to do it the way you want me to do it, even though it's risky, even though it's hard. Because this is what happens, friends. It happens to me, and possibly it's what happens to you. When I go after, if I get into an argument where tension is expressed and no resolution is made, I leave that situation feeling worse than when I came into it. And what God wants me to do is to back away so that I can maintain my, who I am. I, I don't step into another time bomb and I leave fulfilled saying, I might not have resolved, but I didn't make it worse and I was true to myself and I was honoring to God. Let me make this point. There will be no peace and no fulfillment in the life that is divided between doing what God wants and doing what is not what God wants. Peace is a result of being surrendered to Jesus, and fulfillment is a result of being obedient to Jesus. Let me say that again. Peace is a result of being surrendered. God, I'll do it your way. We stop the internal struggle. Fulfillment is when we live that out, and we see God work through the obedience that we have in obeying Him. Characteristic number three, jealousy, etc. The proud and defiant end up getting into jealousy and in competition with others. Verse 2 in the New Living Translation says, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. See, those who are proud and defiant want what others have in order to fill the gap of their life. See, God says this. He said when we have a relationship with Him, our relationship with Him gives us a new security. God the Father becomes our Father. Jesus becomes the one who becomes a new place of belonging. Jesus gives us worth. The Holy Spirit gives us competence. We have a new identity. And all of us are in the process of shifting our identity, our security, from doing things our way, trying to gain our own security, to going and saying, God, I want to experience the security you give because you are God, you are my creator, you are now my Savior and my Lord. 
And when the, what the Bible says that until we make the decision to cross over and to say, Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you the right that we are going to be jealous, we are going to be in competition, until we get to the place where we're able to say, God, I trust you for what I need. Characteristic number four is powerless prayer. Verse 3 says, but you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, verse 2 begins saying, first of all, you don't pray, but when you do pray, you ask with wrong motives. In other words, you are so caught up in the moment of insecurity, you want it to be resolved, and you say, God, please give me what I need. God, please answer my prayer. Please do this, believing that if he gives you what you want, then it will solve the problem. But the problem is, when a prayer that way, we are, we are asking God to change to our will rather than saying, God, help me to change to yours as the one who really knows what I need. And friends, when we pray a selfish prayer asking God to transform into our way, we not only have powerless prayers, but we also end up isolated because we are alone dealing with the issue of our life. Now, those are the four characteristics that are true about a proud and, submiss- proud and defiant person, how is that lived out in their life? What are the results of living that life? Number one, in verses four to six, the person who is proud and defiant commits spiritual adultery. Now, no one wants to be called an adulterer, but here James is calling these Jewish Christians, telling them that they are spiritual adulterers. He said, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, what is adultery? Adultery is someone violates a commitment made by choosing something other than that first commitment. Sexual adultery is when a married man or woman engages in sexual intimacy with someone other than the one they're married to. Spiritual adultery, here James is saying, he's saying you Jewish Christians who had committed your life to Jesus are now turning your loyalty away from Jesus to evil, and because of this you are adulterers. See, friends, when you and I make the decision to make something else first in our life other than God. When we make that an idol, we are committing spiritual adultery, and God again wants to remind us of that and say, this, is, this isn't just something you can do without consequences. There is a commitment that you have broken, and we need to get back on track. Number two, the second result is that person becomes an enemy of God. He also mentioned this in verse 4. James is saying that when a person begins to pursue the pleasures of the world, when they follow the values of the world and choices and make choices based on what the world says rather than what God says, he said, you have switched sides. You have given up your allegiance to God. You've joined the other team and now are seen as an adversary of God, an enemy because you are how, how you are living and what you are saying you believe by your actions. Now, again, this is pretty serious stuff. James isn't messing any words with these Jewish Christians. He thinks you might be arguing and going, doing what you own want, but this is how God sees it. This is the picture of how God interprets our disobedience. A third thing that a proud and defiant does by choosing to pursue, pursue their own way is they incite God to jealousy. Have you ever thought of God as being jealous? We read that God is a jealous God. This verse says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in you? He yearns jealously for the Spirit that He has made to dwell in you. The context of this passage of dealing with jealousy is an expression of God's love. In other words, this is the context. God loved us so much that He created us to have a relationship. The whole deal in the Garden of Eden is God wanting to have a relationship, interaction with the creation, with Adam and Eve. 
Sin came in, messed that up. He creates a sacrificial system by where people can be connected to him. He then ushers in Jesus as a promised Messiah. He sends his own son to die. He raises his son from the dead and shows the ultimate sacrifice, shows the depth of commitment. He is willing to do what he is willing to engage in in order to have crossed the bridge so that you and I can be connected with God. And then the Bible says that when God sees us giving our loyalty to something else after everything he says, he says that the, he, he, he honestly is jealous. He yearns for the interaction that he wants to have with us that we're giving to something else. Have you ever thought of God yearning to have a relationship with you? Of God yearning to have you talk to him? Of God yearning to want you to love him? See, sometimes we put God in this, this ruler mode and we forget his passion for us. Sometimes we see him as an authority. We don't see him as, as a loving father that, of what we sang about this morning. He is a loving father and he is jealous over anything else that gets the love that he wants to receive from us because of the love that he has, what? He has given us. In verse 6, we see that a proud, defiant person experiences an absence of grace. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Two things stated in this verse. First, that God opposes the proud. To oppose means to stand in the way of, or to hinder, to obstruct. So what does this mean? God is opposed to the proud. And what I believe this means is that God does not allow the activity of the proud, the defiant. He does not allow the sinfulness of the prideful people to bring satisfaction. If I am proud and defiant, I say, I want to do this thinking it will bring this pleasure or this action or this accumulation will bring peace to me. And the Bible says that God hinders that. He opposes. He will stand in the way. He will not let anything other than Him fulfill us. God will not let anything else other than Him fulfill us. So anytime we get off track, we are looking at something unfulfilling to try to fill us. And that is why sin is progressive. It becomes more intense and more vile in its attempt to satisfy. The second fact is that the proud and defiant do not experience grace. Friends, grace is what changes us. Grace is what gives us the freedom to change. Grace, God giving us what we don't deserve. God's forgiveness of us is what gives us the security to start over at ground level as, as individuals who are sinners that allows God to come in and rebuild us. Without grace, we are left on our own to try to attain what God freely wants to give us that we can never get on our own. Pride separates from the thing that we need most, forgiveness, peace, and the strength of grace to change our lives. Now we're going to switch gears. We're going into what's the solution. We know the characteristics and we know the effects of the characteristics in the life of those who are defiant and prideful. So what happens in the life of a person who said, I've had enough of this. It is time for me to get humble and to obey and submit my life to God. What does that person look like? A humble and submissive life, number one, receives an abundance of grace. ESV says he gives more grace. The New Living Translation says he gives grace generously. These words tell us that there will always be enough grace regardless of your situation or your need. Hebrews 4.16 says, Come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now what does that verse mean? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sometimes what happens is we get off track and we sin in an area where we never thought we'd sin. 
In other words, we have said this sin is so bad, I can never get over it. I had a gentleman after second service come up and say, I get it. He says, what God does is says we, we carry all this sin around and the burden of this sin around thinking that we have to carry it. And what God says is, I've got all this grace available. Just take it and let the load off. And that's exactly right. But the devil tries to convince us. We try to convince ourselves. If you've grown up into a, a home where you had to earn acceptance, you end up believing that this sin is too much and you just can't release it. There's, you can't release it to be totally free. But the Bible says that we are totally submissive. And we come in and we say, God, this sin I can never save myself from. I receive your grace. That God's grace comes in and it floods over us and it cleanses us. Submissiveness to his grace frees us to be who he wants us to be. God's, there's always more grace. God will never run out of grace for the spiritually humble. An artist once presented a picture of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but they didn't title the picture. And so those running the exhibition titled this picture of Niagara Falls, they titled it More to Follow. Niagara Falls had spilled billions of gallons of water a year for countless years and has more than met the needs of those below. And as an example of God's grace, there is always more to follow. John in Revelation said, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What is God doing in all these verses? He's saying grace is sufficient. There is more than enough. Just be humble enough to receive it. Let God cleanse your heart. Humility and submission. Let the grace of God flood every area of our lives. Ken Hughes tells us that he gives us more grace to overcome personal weakness. In what area of your life are you most frequently failing? What is that area? God will give you grace to overcome if you ask. Perhaps you are so stubborn that you have never lost an argument. Perhaps you are such a knothead you never listen to anyone. Now you find that your relationships are impaired so that your spouse and friends find it difficult to be with you, but you want to change. Come humbly to him. God will give you grace. Perhaps your life has insurmountable obstacles, problems that you don't know how to overcome, the death of someone close, emotional pain, or relational disagreement, a failure that you can't get over. Rather than striving, there is more enough grace available to bring you to peace in that situation so that you're not striving to fix it until you hear God's solution. Verse 7 says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you, flee from you. A person who is humble and submissive, number two, submits to God. Now, submission means to yield to another, and in this concept, to do it voluntarily. To submit to God is to come under Him, recognizing and accepting God's goodness and His call of ownership on our lives. Now, this principle of of submission is so important because you and I can never be a disciple of Jesus without being in submission to Jesus. A fully devoted follower of Jesus can only experience all that God has for him if we are submitting to God. We need to learn the skill of submission. It's a skill. It's something you learn. Sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. You have to try submitting and do your best until you learn how to do it. And, not, and this is it. Not only learn how to do it, but learn the benefits of it. See, if you have been in a situation where you've never been safe, it's very difficult to submit. If you've been in a situation where you've always had to control your life, it's very difficult to submit because that means being vulnerable and being vulnerable is way too risky. But God says this. He says, when you are in a situation that is difficult, the thing I want you to do is to submit to me and trust me to take care of you. To submit to me so that I can take care of you. And God, being a good God, 
and loving us completely will never let us fall. He will always hold us. Now, will it be scary standing out there a bit? Yes, it will. But until we feel, until we submit and feel the release of that vulnerability, God can never come in and do the work in our life that gives us the security that He loves us and that He takes care of us. Mother Teresa required her sisters of charity to be people who smiled. You know, they, they took care of the, of the homeless, to those dying. And the kids say, oh boy, it's going to be a tough day. And she required them to smile. Is it possible that serving others as they did took on a greater sense of significance when they served with a smiling and willing and expectant attitude? Oh God, this is tough and I'm going to trust you. So we take it as a challenge, not as a threat, believing that God is going to grow and change us as we trust Him in submission. Number three, the humble and submissive resist the devil. If we resist the devil, he will flee, verse 7 says. The word resist means to stand against and to oppose. John MacArthur states that to stand with God is to stand against everything sinful and worldly. Frederick the Great of Prussia ruled between 1740 and 1786. He was a confirmed atheist. And one of his greatest generals was a man by the name of Hans von Zieten. This general was respected. He was loyal. He was capable. He was also slight in stature, feeble in voice, but had a brilliant military mind and was valiant in battle. Well, once Frederick the Great asked this great general to come to a meal with him, and and the general reclined, saying that he instead was going to go to church. And he went to another banquet with the king that he was able to attend. And the king and some of the other people there made fun of, his, of this general for his Christian beliefs. And after a while, von, Zatter, von Zieten stood up and placed conviction over safety and with respect addressed the king. He said, my Lord, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even under death. I am a Christian man and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored and his character is belittled. Well, everyone else hearing that just sat quietly. What was King Frederick going to do? Was he going to erupt in anger? Was he going to imprison the man? Was he going to order him executed? But what happened was Frederick grabbed the hand of his courageous general, asked for his forgiveness, and requested that he remain at the meal And the king promised that he would never again belittle Christianity. See, resisting the devil is not just a thought pattern, it's an action word. And it requires us to stand firm for what we believe. We live in a world that is in such opposition to Christ. The question we have to ask, at what point do we say like Frederick, I will not listen as my Lord's name is dishonored and his character belittled. I will take a stand for him in a respectful and truthful way and firm way. The humble and submissive number four, draw near to God. Verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, there is no substitute for seeking. There's no substitute for seeking. When I lose my keys or my phone, as I sometimes do, and if I can't find them right away, what happens? My emotional intensity gets higher, right? Where are they? You know, what's going on? And I seek with greater intensity. I relook in places I've looked. I look in others. I ask for help. I do whatever it takes for me to find my keys. But first, I want to try to act like I didn't lose my keys. I don't want to tell anybody, you know. But then when I realize I can't find them, I begin to get more upset, realizing what I've lost or could lose, so I begin to seek. It seems to me that drawing near to God involves sincerely searching for Him. And if I can't find him to search more intentionally until 
in some way I have encountered with him. I want to make it, let me repeat that, to make it a priority of my life to engage with God so purposefully and intentionally that I am not satisfied until in some way I have encountered him. And friends, when we encounter God after seeking him, it changes us. When you encounter God after seeking him, it changes you. Sometimes we seek, but we don't seek until we encounter. And, and this is what I believe. I believe that sometimes we have to work through things, and sometimes we have to do other things, but we have to keep saying, God, I need to seek you. God, I need to find you. God, I need to know you. I need to understand you. And it might be through a word. It might be through a whisper. But here's what you need to go. God wants us to really want him. God wants us to want him. He wants us to read, to meditate on Scripture. He wants us to talk. He wants us to do whatever it is we need to do in order for Him to know how much we want Him so that He can reveal Himself to us. Number five, the humble and submissive are spiritually transformed. The last part of verse eight says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleansing our hands refers to external change that we need to make, changing our actions, changing our habits, moving away from ungodly things to doing godly things, doing whatever we need to do so that our external life changes and we are living a God-like life. To purify our hearts refers to bringing our thoughts and our desires, our inner, our inner self to God and say, God, would you change and remove my anger? Would you change and remove the pride? Would you, Lord, help me to be more trusting? Would you change the very fabric of my heart that as I seek you, I seek you from purity that you place there? So we not only give God permission to change our exterior, but we say, God, do an inner work in me. And sometimes we don't even know what that means. But you know what's good news? God knows what it means. So if you say, God, change my interior, change my desires, you and you submit and are obedient to Him, God will begin a transformation of awareness, allowing you to change and be transformed. But to the degree that we close off, to that degree, God does not have access to make the transformation that He wants to make in our lives. What does it involve? It involves an acknowledgement of our sin. It, acknowledge, uh, it involves an acknowledgement, a need to change and a willingness to change. And it also involves being willing to receive the forgiveness, the grace, so we can be free. Patrick Neff attended Baylor University, got his law degree, ended up being a prosecuting attorney in Waco. He served on the Texas... Uh, what do you call it, Texas House of Representatives. And then for two years, he was a governor of Texas. And during his two-year stint as a governor of Texas, he went one time to the state penitentiary. And he spoke to the inmates. And as he closed, he said, if any of you want to speak to me afterwards, I'd be glad to speak to you. And, and everything you say to me will be in confidence. I won't hold it against you or use it against you. And naturally, a lot of inmates wanted to talk to him. And most of the inmates came. And they talked about the fact that they had had some kind of injustice done to them, that they were innocent. They were innocent and they shouldn't be in jail. Until one man came and he said, Mr. Governor, I want to say that I'm guilty. I did what they sent me for, but I believe that I paid for it. And if I were to be granted the right to go out, I could be a good citizen and prove myself worthy of your pardon. What did he say? First of all, he was honest. I'm a sinner. I messed up. I did what was wrong. Second, I paid the price. I'm, I'm, I'm submitted. I want to get better. I've changed my life. And if and if you will give me the opportunity, I will show that freedom. See, when we come to Christ, that's what happens. An acknowledgement of our guilt is accompanied by forgiveness, by, which moves to transformation, which leads us, what? To freedom, a new way of living. Number six, those who are submissive and humble 
grieve over their sin. Verse 9 states, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I remember at the age of five, very, very few things about my mother's funeral. I remember walking up the stairs inside the country church where we attended. There were some steep kind of stairs just inside the building, and it was a small foyer, and the foyer was maybe 12 foot wide and maybe 12 foot deep, maybe a little longer than that. And to the right stood my mother's open casket, and I remember standing there and not grasping what was happening, not understanding what I lost when my mother died. Many years later, I was sitting at my desk at the church I was pastoring in Alberta, and I was going through kind of an emotional, painful emotional time of healing. And one day as I was sitting at my desk, the weight of my mother's death over 20 years before overwhelmed me. And I just wept. I wept uncontrollably, sobbing, releasing a torrent of emotion, of loss and pain. I wept because of what I'd lost. I wept because of what I did not have. And I wept because of what I longed for. And it was a release. And I believe in many ways our grieving over our sin is the same way. See, grieving, mourning, cannot be planned and it cannot be contrived. It is a heartfelt response based on the impact of what we've done and how we've hurt God. And we maybe, if you are like me, I need to pray and say, God, give me a more aware, a greater awareness of the offense of my sin, of how my sin grieves you. Help me to mourn it. And in mourning, not minimize it. So many times if I sin, I, I want to confess it and move on. But I need to ask God, God, give me a heart enough that I am troubled by how my sin affects you. Never think that God is not an emotional God. He is an emotional God. And our sin grieves and disappoints Him. Do we, would, be, we, we, would we be wise to say, oh God, give me a renewed understanding of how my sin separates from you, separates me from you, what I've lost, and help me to grieve it with an understanding of what I can gain as I get right with you. Number seven, the humble and submissive is lifted up by God. Verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. In the first verses of this chapter, James talks about people who are exalting themselves and that they're trying to do what they need to do to exalt themselves. They're arguing, they're comparing, they're jealous, they're trying to get possessions. And James ends this section by saying, if you're humble, if you humble yourself before the Lord, you're not going to have to worry because God's going to exalt you. Now, there's numerous ways that God can exalt you, how He can provide for you, how He can um, do things that recognize your worth and value. And all of those are ways that God exalts you, what He does in your life. But let me suggest that there is a greater exaltation awaiting us that we really need to keep our eyes on. When Billy Graham's wife died, Ruth, in 2007, she chose to have something engraved on her tombstone that had nothing to do with the um, marvelous achievements of her life. She said that that before she... um, Sure, she died. She'd been driving one day along a highway through a construction site where there were miles of detours and cautionary signs and machinery and equipment. When she finally came to the last one, the final sign read, End of construction, thanks for your patience. And that is what is written over Ruth Graham's grave. End of construction, thanks for your patience. 
See, as long as you and I are alive, we are under the construction, the transformation of our God. But when we get, leave this earth into eternity, the construction is done and we come into the presence of God. We leave the temporary and move into the eternal. And the Bible says that when we experience heaven, we will be recognized, we will be exalted as a child of the King. Now we are living as citizens of another world. Paul says in one of our, his writings that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven, and when we get there, we will be exalted. John in Revelation 21 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. And the Lamb and the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is a lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We will be exalted, and the Bible says that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and we will be free of this and exalted to his the position that he has assigned us. Friends, as you are living each day, may we be faithful. May we move away from the habits and patterns of the proud and defiant, and may we embrace the lifestyle of the submissive and of the humble. May we resist the devil. May we draw near to God. May we anticipate his transformation, and may we look forward to his exaltation. Life is a journey, friends, and we are called to live it in such a way that we live with the reality of God as our supreme goal, giving ourselves, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't seem right, even when it scares the dickens out of us, to say, God, I am going to be fully committed to you because when we are, when we hit that point of saying, God, God, I'm yours. Though I can't see, I trust you. Though I can't hear, I believe you. I am fully committed when we do that. Something in our life opens up and we begin to live and experience life and God confirms within us the truth of what we by faith have been believing. So let us live as children of the King, fully committed to him in every way.